With government shutdown on everybody's mind, the Senate this week is trying to fashion a package of three bills. This, as the House seems to be at war with itself, or at least one party. We get the Capitol Hill update now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And so the Senate is the one where the action is right now, actually, with a little bit of progress toward a budget? They've made a little progress. They spent most of last week trying to get on to this three-bill package of spending measures, and now they'll spend this week on it discussing the the bills themselves and then amendments that they want to make to them. Um, That's the first three that have hit the floor during this fiscal year for the Senate, and the House at this point has passed one and has struggled to get any others on the floor. The big standoff last week was whether or not to bring up the defense spending bill. They went to the rules committee, teed it up, and then stopped going any further with it. So we'll be watching this week to see if the House can get back on track with that measure or some of the other measures. Um, And those would be the full year bills that would tackle everything between now and September 30th of 2024. Um, But we are also tracking what's going to happen in the short term because barring some magical agreement, something has to happen by September 30th to avert a government shutdown. So for a faction of the House to go along with anything, what is it they want out of this? That 1% reduction from 2023 levels? Well, that's something that would occur automatically under the the debt limit deal. The the provision there is if you still have a CR going in past January 1, that there would be a 1% reduction in the spending caps. But um, there's a lot of different things cooking out there. And and this recipe that might get them from here to some sort of stopgap spending is evolving as it was last week. You know, there's discussions about what to do about the Ukraine aid that the president has asked for, that Democrats are behind, that Senate Republicans and some House Republicans are behind as well. But Ukraine funding is a sticking point. Um, Disaster aid, there's more consensus about doing something around that, but it's going to need a vehicle. And then there's a lot of interest still in border security provisions and maybe pairing some of the funding with that. So how you kind of thread the needle with those different demands and those different needs might be key between here and there. Um, And some people may not want to vote for a CR under any circumstance. If there's more than four of those, then Kevin McCarthy's problem gets pretty acute. Right. And he has to give up that nice wooden hammer or something if they they get what they want, that anti, you know, faction there. I guess the visit impending by the president of Ukraine is well-timed. Absolutely. He's flying to the U.S. primarily to go to the General Assembly, but our understanding is it's going to come down to Washington as well and meet with members of Congress. So he'll probably make a very in-person plea to them for more assistance. Um, I think it was about $24 billion that was asked for over the recess by the president, and that is what's at stake right now. But um, if they get to that defense appropriations bill, there was an amendment that was made in order by Matt Gates to stop assistance to Ukraine. So, you know, there's a lot to work through there. Um, Those personal appeals have worked in the past. We saw him come to Capitol Hill before. So something to watch for sure this week. Is there any movement on the National Defense Authorization Act where in the House there is that hold on the whole thing over the social issues we've talked about, funding for abortion travel and so on? And then there's the hold on military officers. This is beginning to be like a broken record here. Yes. Well, the NDAA has gotten through both the House and the Senate and could go to a conference or at least informal talks at any point now. But what you said is correct. The part of it that's the core defense authorization, you know, how much to authorize in total, they're almost aligned. And you can see the classic puts and takes when it comes to some of the other programs that the Defense Department oversees. But the sticking point really may be the social issues that were in the House bill that took it from a bill that came out of 
committee with very bipartisan backing to a bill that was passed by the House with on a very much party line vote. So we'll be watching that closely. That's a little bit more behind the scenes. That legislation is more of an end of the year necessity than September 30th. It would be nice to have it in place, but a lot of those authorities run more of a calendar year. So we'll be, again, watching that one very closely. But the social issues in that bill are also some of the things that are going to make spending talks harder because all of the House spending bills have those, while the Senate went a very much more bipartisan approach in writing their 12 appropriations bills. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And there's some other issues Congress is dealing with, including something that probably affects some regulatory agencies, probably the TSA, if nothing else, if it goes through a pipeline. But that is the restrictions on liquid natural gas are coming up. What's going on there? Well, the House is going to take up a bill this week while they work behind the scenes on the spending issues to lift restrictions in law on the import and export of liquefied natural gas. So this is part of Republicans wanting to unleash more traditional sources of energy. Um, They pushed back, obviously, on some of the approaches that Democrats took, especially in their um, reconciliation bill from 2022 that had a lot of green funds in it. Um, But this is, you know, their approach to try and open up more energy business, basically, for the United States by importing and exporting that. So um, that's one of the measures we'll see on the House floor this week, in addition to, you know, the talks that we're monitoring so closely. And there's a package of health bills that might be of interest to the government coming up there, too. That's right. This is a package that three key House committees have worked together on. The Energy and Commerce, Education and the Workforce, and Ways and Means Committee all share healthcare oversight. And they've worked on some proposals to reauthorize some expiring programs. One of the biggest is for community health centers, but it also has provisions on drug pricing, which have obviously been of interest. And um, pharmacy benefit managers, which I think you and I have talked about, and if you turn on a streaming service or, or watch TV, you get a lot of ads about them and their role role in the pharmacy and medicine processes. Yeah, there's more ads so on some... that than there have been since Hillary Care, <laughs> if you remember that exactly. far back. Exactly. And, and there's some bipartisan consensus on doing something. Um, the, the companies themselves have pushed back and said some of the things that have been talked about in Congress would be harmful, but um, Congress is moving forward with at least a few things in this package. We're looking for a House vote on that as soon as this week, and then we'll see what they can do in the Senate. Um, these are some of the extender provisions that could ride along somewhere else if the the longer term deals aren't ready, but much like, you know, FAA and Farm Bill and other programs that are coming up for renewal, that kind of forces Congress to act and, and write some bills around that. All right. And interestingly, telework came up in the House last week. And what was interesting is that there's not this unanimous Republicans want everybody back in the office all the time versus the Democrats. Go telework all you want. There seems to be bipartisan realization that, guess what, before the pandemic, there was a lot of telework already. Right. So I I think that there's a push to have agencies at the very least re-examine what their policies are, how they want to approach things. Um, Telework existed and some of the language that's been brought up before is return to your pre-pandemic telework stance. Um, What were your plan in 2019? Maybe readopt those. So we'll see if there's any language in spending bills that get signed into law that, that deal with this. Obviously, there's with any workforce issue, there's union issues to deal with and what agreements do you have. Um, but there is there have been bipartisan calls for a return to the office from President of the United States, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who want to see more people downtown and stimulating the economy there. And obviously, folks on Capitol Hill as well are looking for for some sort of path forward on that. Um, so we'll, we'll see if this results in anything, but it was a chance to air some 
some of these ideas that people have, questions that people have about the current telework policies. Who knows? Maybe the food trucks could come back someday. We miss those some days, don't we? We sure do. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways. So that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? 
I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through Two Star General. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership, 
feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or you know something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision it's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? 
it's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.